2 Kings chapter 3. We talked this morning about four kings and the king of kings. And we'll begin with the first several verses in the chapter and we'll work our way through sort of like we did last week with, with the rest of it. But 2 Kings chapter 3, and, and God's word says this. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas! The Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king's servants answered, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. We'll stop there and we'll pick this up so... Uh, those who like to follow along in the scriptures, you can keep your Bibles open, but uh, however best you listen and, and respond to the sermon, but please be seated. And let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We know the God we're reading about in these pages of scripture is the same God that we're praying to right now. And we could use your help always when we interact with your word. We know your scripture is true. We know your Holy Spirit is present and powerful, and we thank you for that, and we anticipate what you have for us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Just by way of introduction, I just want to tell you, if you're trying to live life as a Christian without time interacting with God's word, uh, you're on a, uh, I was going to say a fool's errand. You're, you're, on a, you're on a hopeless situation. Why be a Christian? Why say, I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior who saved me? And why say, I know his word is true and there for me, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with it because I've got too many other things going on. Um, you need to increase your Bible intake. Um, I say with three fingers pointing back at myself. Uh, there is a need for us. Uh, we can drift. Churches can drift. Denominations can drift. 
and individuals can drift if we're not anchoring ourselves in the word of God. Now, I thought that the uh, Newton quote, and maybe I'll put that in next week's, uh, I thought the one I put in was the one that said that not every Christian, in the same way that individuals don't all look the same, like you look at our faces and they're all different, um, uh, even people in the same families, you can see similarities, but they're different. And, and John Newton had a quote that I read this week, or a, a paragraph out of a letter that he wrote, that talked about how in the same way in, in Christianity, the way that God works with people is different. So how... Uh, you know, somebody has their morning devotions and how they prepare for their day and how they interact with the Word it might be different than your way. Um, but it's the Word and the interaction that I'm talking about. Some people really do good at listening to Scripture. They can close their eyes with their cup of coffee, uh, maybe, or even without it, and they can hear it read to them. And if they've got the right reader that they respond to, that's, that's the Word. That's reading the Scripture. That's interacting with the Scripture. Other people can read larger sections, some smaller sections. Um, I'm not telling you that everybody has to do the exact same thing the same way, but I am telling you, without God's word, you're in trouble. And that's the gist of the message this morning. So to understand, uh, God's word in those days uh, came to people through his prophets. Later on, they were recorded. But Elisha was a prophet of God. And so we talk about Elisha's words. It's not really Elisha's words that we mean so much as God's word speaking through Elisha. And with that in mind, uh, there are four things about the word of God this morning that we will look at in this text. The first is the word of God makes a totalitarian claim. I don't like totalitarianism uh, except under one circumstance when we understand that God is total and that God is sovereign and God is king. I'll take that and I'll submit to that totalitarianism, but that's it. That's our first point. The word of God makes a totalitarian claim, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, the word of God is dangerous, 4 through 14. What's he going to say when we get there? Well, stay tuned. It's, it's worth it's worth it. Uh, the third point the word of God typically, verses 15 through 25. And finally, a very sad section, but a good one for the Christian. The word of God is an easy yoke, verses 26 through 27. So first of all, the word of God makes a totalitarian claim. Gives us the first three verses. It talks about Ahab is gone. Ahab and Jezebel are out. They were wicked, terrible people. They lied, they stole, they used the power of, of office that should have been to lead God's people into righteousness. They used it to kill and lie, uh, deception. Uh, I'm just thinking of Naboth's vineyard for, for right now, but there were so many things that they did that were wrong. And finally, praise God, they were removed from their office and along comes, we saw there was an intermediate, uh, when we first started the section, there was a, um, a guy named Ahaziah that was there shortly, and he fell through the lattice, remember, and he was dead. And so here comes the next real king, and his name was Jehoram. And Jehoram, it says, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, not like his 
mom and dad had done because he did put away the pillar of, the, of Baal, the idol that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. So he wasn't as bad. He was the lesser of two evils. He was, we use that a lot of times around election time, and I was thinking about that phrase, the lesser of two evils, and thinking about maybe 25 or 30 years ago when they had a governor's race down in Louisiana. One was an out-and-out racist, David Duke. One was an out-and-out crook, been convicted of it. And the other one was just as bad. And I forget what her issues were, but she was just as anti-God. And they asked the one guy uh, who was running, they said, well, in light of all of your corruption charges where you've barely dodged jail, in light of this candidate and this candidate, who would you say to vote for? He said, hold your nose and vote for me. (laughs) And a lot of times that's what people do when we look at leadership. Um, This guy wasn't as bad as his mom and dad. But did he get a free pass? Hey, he took away the pillar of Baal, but he didn't turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. We think of degrees of evil, and some of us are hanging our hopes on that, that we're not as bad as the ones before us, or not as bad as our brother, or not as bad as our wife, or not as bad as our kid, or not as bad as our neighbor, or not as bad as that TV preacher, or whatever. Um, No. The Bible makes a totalitarian claim. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Are there degrees of evil? Well, of course there are. Of course there are degrees of of evil. This passage even says it. Shorter Catechism, question 83. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Answer, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. I mean, think about it. I personally would rather have you just think about throwing a hymn book at me than actually doing it. Uh, There's some things with consequences. There are some things... uh, all sins and all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, but there are ways and degrees of, of evilness, and we know that. But James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And so Jehoram couldn't say, Well, I'm not as bad as my parents. At least I took the idol down and think he's going to get a free pass from the Lord. The application for us, sometimes to assuage our own consciences when we are feeling guilty for sin and things we've done, and rather than just admitting and confessing it, laying our sins on Jesus, we tend to say, I'm not as bad as I could be, or I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But it's not like on Judgment Day there's this big, giant bracket and God pulls two people in and he compares them. This one advances to the next round and the next round and the next round until he gets the one he, he uh, likes that is less of a sinner or less offensive to him. It's not like that at Judgment Day where somebody can hope to emerge as a winner in God's eyes by having fewer errors. Or even where we compare ourselves to where we were last week. Some people say compare yourself to yourself and as long as you're improving. Uh, For one, that's a trick because a lot of the times when we think we're improving in our righteousness, uh, 
that old sin of pride, which is, which is the first one with I right in the middle of it, is actually worse than, than some of the things that we think we've shaken. The writer of Second Kings says, This man was not as bad as his dad, but what does he say he was? Verse 2, he did what was evil. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what does God want from you, Christian? Well, he wants Christ-likeness. He wants progressive sanctification. We get saved, we grow, we find ourselves uh, uh, maybe surprisingly. We, sometimes we're so surprised and say, wow, I did the right thing. I would have done the wrong thing there. But it's got to start with not our works and ourselves. And it doesn't even, it doesn't even end with our works and ourselves. It starts and ends where he wants you to be right with him with no sins on your record. And how do you achieve this? No sins on your record. No evil. You do that with repentance and faith in Jesus and Jesus as your substitute. So don't be comfortable in saying, I'm not as bad as. Uh, Find your comfort in saying, in God's eyes, I have a clean slate because Jesus bore my sins in his own body on the tree. So we take, take that tip from him. And then we look at the word of God again. The word of God declared, declared Jehoram uh, to still be evil, even though he wasn't as bad as, as he could have been or as those around him. But also I want us to see this morning that the word of God is dangerous. We read some of the verses. We read where um, the king of Moab had rebelled. Apparently he had a deal, and they had some power over him, and he had to, in order to keep the peace, bring 100,000 sheep and some wool and all those things. Ahab's gone. He says, I'm going to test this thing. They're in some disarray. I'm going to rebel against them. And that king, Jehoram, said, nope, my dad was getting all this. I'm going to get it. He goes down to, to Israel, and he gets that king uh, to, to join him. And they're out in the desert running around trying to, to, to bring Moab under their thumb. And it didn't turn out good. They just ran off, uh, basically, which way do we go? Well, we'll go this way. And it says um, they find themselves after a circuitous march of seven days, no water for the army or the animals. The king of Israel, Jehoram, says, um, he says, alas, God's doing this. He's going to destroy us out here. He did this to, to bring us out here to kill us. And Jehoshaphat from Judah says, no, maybe our problem is we didn't consult the Lord first. Can we listen to God's word first? Is there anybody that has God's word? And Elisha comes. This is where we get into the word of God is dangerous. Is there someone who can actually find out what God says? A good response, finally, in the midst of your trouble, is to turn to God's word. A practical lesson for us, whoever we are, in this day and age that we can get from this scripture, is even if we've messed our lives up, even if we haven't started out with God, even if we're in our 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, and we're saying, wait a minute, I didn't live for God. Better to do what this king did and said, how about God's word for a change? What's God's word say about how I live the rest of my life? What does God have to say about the position I'm in right now? Don't let your pride keep you from checking in with God now. Some of us in here will start as kids, and we will 
start out saying, I'm going to trust God and live for God. Others of us have been a little dense, and we wait till we make a mess of things. But now it's time to look at God's word. What does God's word say about my situation, about himself, and about the world? And so in this case, God's word was given through his prophet Elisha. And here's what Elisha said. This is the dangerous aspect of it. They went down to see Elisha, and this is verse 13. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, to Jehoram, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it's the Lord who's called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Jehoram, the only reason I'm talking to you as the leader of God's people is because of your association with this king. Otherwise, I would have nothing to do with you. Go, go consult the people that your mom consulted. Go see the people your dad consulted. What did Jezebel do? 1 Kings 18, 19. Uh, where Elijah had said, Gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. His mom was feeding and maintaining 850 false prophets for the false god. He said, Go to your mom. Why come to God? Go to your mom. Go to your dad's God. See what your dad did. King Ahab, 1 Kings 22, 6 through 8. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go up to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they all said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat, same guy, he was working with the dad, now he's working with the son, said, Is there another prophet of the Lord to whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel, Ahab, Jehoram's dad, said to Jehoshaphat, There's one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. So he's saying, hey, Jehoram, why are you talking about to God all of a sudden? You're in a jam. You've, you've started this little war. Your people are starving and, and thirsting. Your animals are thirsty. And now you're calling God, and I wouldn't even look at you. Go to your, go to your, your dad, who, who found just a bunch of, of suck-up toadies to tell you what to do. Go to your mom, who went to the false gods. What's going on with this? The dangerous aspect of the word of God. There are times uh, when, when the word of God, people cross a line and it's so ineffective to them and it doesn't matter to them and, 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 and it wouldn't even speak to them. There are times where we, we think, well, I've always got a hope. I'll always come back. I'll always do that. Remember the kid uh, whose dad was a pastor and he was telling all of us back in my college days, and he was in high school. He goes, well, I'm going to sow my wild oats first, and I know I can come back to God. And I hope he did. But how can you say that's what you're going to do? Turn your back on God, neglect God, forget God, and just think that any time you want, you can come waltzing back. Um, This scripture says, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even speak to you. That's the word of God saying that to that man. Uh, listen to how, how uh, Dr. Davis uh, put it in his commentary. He said, and this is, this is where it gets practical for you and for me. 
He said, now chew a bit on Elisha's words. Do you hear him? He is saying that Jehoram is beyond the help of Yahweh's word, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat. That is a frightening implication. You can place yourself beyond the point of receiving direction or help from God. How might you know if you are in danger of doing that? Well, if your pattern is to seek God like Jehoram only for your convenience so that you are trifling with God. You may be interested only in escape from trouble, but not in the path of discipleship. That was Jehoram. He wanted to use the word of God in the moment, but not to submit to it long term. Jehoramites, which is a word he invented, Jehoramites view the word of God as something for emergency only, but not for normal days. God is simply the airbag in the disasters of life, which you hope you never have to use. If that is your danger, you may, if that is your pattern, you may be placing yourself, may be placing yourself beyond the help of God's word. That is the alarming danger of the word of God, uh, where you can say all your life, well, I'll have a deathbed conversion. Well, I hope if you're not converted uh, in the life you've lived, I hope it's a deathbed conversion for you. But how can you say that's what you're going to do? Why not consult the word of God and live by the word of God as a habit and a pattern of life? Why not do that? Uh, I would also say this. Some of us uh, are in our life as the, the Jehoshaphat type people for people that are running away. And, and you need to be Jehoshaphat for those straying kids. <laughs> you need to be like Job and pray for them. You need to, to keep there and, and, and see what God does. Uh, some people in denominations that are totally shot and gone would have been gone a whole lot further if it hadn't been for people experiencing standing for God and God's word even coming into those denominations, even as the leadership and as people drifted far and far away, there were godly people at that time until they just had to pull out. Uh, but, but, and then the word of God left with them. So understand uh, the danger of the word of God is that you just can't say, hey, I know there's a Bible, I know there's a magic book, and whenever I want to come to it. Uh, no. Make it a habit and a pattern of your life. Say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for God. I'm going to see what God says, and I'm going to do it. Uh, visit his scriptures. Listen to sermons, and then check the s- scriptures and make sure the sermons are, 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 are backing up what the preacher is saying. But uh, you will do no wrong to find an extra even 15 minutes in your day somewhere. Uh, and say, I'm, I'm going I'm to get into the word. I'll take five minutes of that 15, and I'll just, I'll just read some scriptures. I'll ask somebody, or I'll find, or I'll just start in the Gospels, or I'll do whatever. And then uh, I'll take 10 minutes just praying and, and thinking about what they say for ramification for my life. Something like that. Whatever. I'm just giving you suggestions, but I'm saying make room for the word of the Lord, and don't just look at it as, as Dr. Davis said, as your airbag that will be there for you. You know it works, uh, and, and you hope you never have to use it. That's not God's word. God's word is great. And we're going to find out now uh, the word of God typically. And here's, here's something about God's word that, that, that is a reminder for all of us that's good. So my transition sentence. Take a look at yourself and your relationship to the word of God. 
Resolve right now to make necessary corrections in your relationship with God and his word. And while you're doing that, consider God's word in its typical tendency. The word of God typically. Verses 15 through 25. But now bring me a musician, says Elisha. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, on Elisha. And Elisha said this in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you will not see wind or rain, but that steam bed, stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink. You, your livestock, and your animals. The immediate need of, uh, of the livestock, of the people, the need for water. I'm going to bring water. Not from rain that you'll see, not from wind blowing in a cloud and dropping it, but there's going to be water there. Didn't stop there. He said, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. You're going to have a total victory over your enemy that you just a moment ago were saying was going to defeat you. The next morning, about the time of the offering and sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. Now we're going to take advantage of this. And they saw the water God had sent, the sun shining on it, and in that sun's ray of morning, it looked like blood, and they figured that's what it was, and they were going to go finish off these three kings uh, after whatever damage they had done to each other. To the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites as till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they did exactly what God said. They overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone till it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Harasheth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. The word of God typically. It's greater and better than just your immediate need. It's deeper than your felt need. God does this, but then he adds this and this and this. Um, I was interested in the music. And I thought, thought about that this morning as I was reading through this. Uh, Elisha said, bring the musician to play the music. What would that sound, have sounded like, I wonder? You know, uh, what was it? And I didn't have time or didn't take the time, and I, and I don't know this week to explore the connection with music and, and God's word, but you think back to David playing the harp and, and God using music. Music is a wonderful thing, and it's a good gift. Anyway, there was a musician. He played some music, and somehow God used that, and, and God then spoke and gave the words to Elisha. And Elisha said, well, we've got good things in, in store for you. 
didn't deserve it. Jehoram sure didn't. Good things in store for God's people. Water, but not just water, victory. And not a natural explanation for the water, but God the supplier of the water. God doing it clearly. And beyond the water, complete victory over the foe. The water and the winning were connected. Israel's water brings Moab's defeat. And you think about these guys coming and seeing that water. And they said, all right, we're going to follow the science here. We'll follow the science. The science is everything. And the science says there was no cloud or wind and there was no rain. So that water cannot be rain. And as we follow the science, we know that fluid that's red is blood. And we see that. And they, they saw the science and they followed it to their death. And they looked at that bloody water and they wanted it to be so much that they would have their victory and they willed it to be blood and it's the only thing it could be scientifically and they died as they charged in they thought it was easy pickings because people always prefer to believe what they prefer to be true and they were wrong and there was water for God's people of Judah and Israel and there was deliverance Think about what Jesus said in in the New Testament, what he did in the New Testament with the paralytic, how he gives much more than what sometimes we want to use him for, uh, help in trouble, be the lifeboat, be the airbag, be all these things. And and, and Jesus says, no, so much more than that. Uh, We think in terms, because we can't help it, we're just human beings, aren't we? And so a lot of times we think in terms of our temporal needs, Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the prayer we prayed. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, There's nothing wrong with looking at Jesus for our temporal needs. But there's so much more as you read the word of God. And as you do this more and more, you're going to see more and more that it's more than just the material or the physical. There's something spiritual going on. So here's Jesus and the paralytic in Matthew 9. And getting into a boat Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So here's the guy they brought so he could raise him up to take up his bed and walk. And and what does Jesus do? He forgives his sins. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, for us, both of those would be hard things. But for God, he can say rise and walk or your sins are forgiven. It's the same thing to him. Send some water, send a big victory. Same thing to God. And God's Word, as we see, shows the extravagance of God, and we can see that God's word typically is wonderful and encouraging and extravagant in that way. So here's what happened with the rest of that Jesus story. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who'd given such authority to men. God doesn't just give the one thing and stop there. Give, give, give. 
Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Thinking of last week sitting at the table with Louisa with her little present that she'd gotten and the one toy she played with and played with. Um, I, I don't know. I'm going to assume that was from Grandma, but maybe it wasn't. But, but for the story's sake, it was from Grandma. Um, is that the only toy, the only thing that Grandma will ever give that little girl? Nah. Where Grandma is loving that little child, there's gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts. In God's Word, there's gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts. And we don't just come to Him to bail us out of a jam, or we don't just come to Him just to get saved and have that transaction and think that he's going to exit our lives after that. God gives grace and he gives mercy. In the young people's Sunday school class, we were talking about the difference between grace and mercy. Uh, The similarity is they both come from God, they're both undeserved, but grace and mercy. What is mercy? It's when God's people don't get what they deserve. What is grace? It's when God's people get what they don't deserve. Uh, some some uh, old Christian contemporary band, the Newsboys, had a, a song, and in the verse they said, when you don't get what you deserve, that's a real good thing. When you get what you don't deserve, that's a real good thing. That's true. Uh, you have gifts from God, and it doesn't limit. And as you read God's word, typically what you see in Scripture for God's people is giving from God and giving and giving. Or, and I like this one a lot, the whole idea, the theological term, double cure. We sing rock of ages, cleft for me, and we sing be of sin, the double cure. What is the double cure that theologians talk about when they talk about this? Well, say he doesn't stop with justification, but he gives sanctification. Here's John Calvin on that. Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace. A double grace when we uh, take what God's given to us and we grasp Jesus. That double grace is this. Namely, Calvin says, that by being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father. You're going to die and go to heaven and hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant from your gracious father. Uh, Instead of the judge saying, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. We have that justification. But Calvin goes on to say this. Secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. We get to live for God now. Uh, He pushed that first domino, uh, which he had set up called justification, he also set up a second domino called sanctification. And and, and when he pushed the first one, he gave us sanctification. We get to live as Christians. We still sin, we still hurt people, but not as bad as we did, and we know how to say, uh, I'm sorry, and please forgive me, and we find ourselves growing even in this life. And then that third domino of glorification. And so it's all connected. He doesn't just stop with the transaction. He doesn't just give the water to get them out of a jam so they can drink and go home. He gives them the objective of victory. 
And we who are God's people love the extravagance of God's word. We also like it that God's word is an easy yoke, which is emphasized in this text by showing the hard yoke for those who are enemies of God's word. And now listen to this. Wraps up this episode with verses 26 and 27. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So he, he found the, what he thought was the weakest link. Not Jeho- Jehoram, uh, king of Israel, not Jehoshaphat, uh, king of Judah, but the little vassal, the king of Edom, who we didn't hear much about, but was nevertheless a king. He said, that's where we can break through. So he takes his 700 swordsmen to break through that line, the weakest link. But he couldn't do that. So then the king of Moab took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. I will take my son and kill him on on the wall. And that will appease my gods. Maybe my gods will stir us on to victory when they see that I'm giving my son. Think of the opposite of that. The God giving his son to bring you to life. Versus this king in his desperation. I'll just kill my kid to get out of my financial jam. People still do that. And he took his son and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, it says. And we're going to explain that in a minute. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So he had two options. Breakthrough, couldn't do that. Second, well, he's part of a culture of death, whereas Christianity is a culture of life. And in his culture of death, he had to kill his son, he thought. I go, why didn't he just kill himself and turn the thing over to his son? What a selfish man. What a selfish man. But what about the last part of the verse? And this needs some explaining, so stay with me, and then we've got a good wrap-up. It says, there came great wrath against Israel. I didn't look up every potential um, translation that you might be carrying. For instance, I don't know what the NIV says about this. I just looked at the Hebrew and, and, the, uh, and the explanations for it. There are four things. Because why would he kill his son and then Israel uh, have wrath against them and they all go home and not the complete victory? So one theory. They say this is Yahweh's, Jehovah's, God's anger. And words in the text such as great wrath would support this. People have said, well, they didn't like the scorched earth policy that they did. Well, if you read... That's what God had commanded them to do. They followed his instructions. So you can't say all of a sudden God sees Moab king kill his son. He gets mad at Israel. Uh, It's not logical in the text. They say the only way it could work is if some Moabite scribe snuck in later and changed the text or something, and that's not going to happen. Second second option here that that people have said, well, Chemosh, the Midianite god, was angry. Uh, He's motivated then as he sees the Midianite king killed a god, then that god uh, stirs up his people. In other words, it worked. Killing your kid worked. Um, We know that's not true because we know that there's really no such thing as Chemosh, the Midianite god. We know that's just another thing that people believe. Um, uh, So that can't be it. Um, uh, What the ESV study Bible says, and I think that they're wrong in this, but they do, they're right in this part. They say, no, that anger uh, that's talking about there is not an anger from God, but it's human anger. 
And they said that uh, uh, the Midianites were angry at their king doing this, and that motivated them, and they drove the people home. Well, it is human anger. The Hebrew word al, A-L, pronounced that, can be against or upon depending on the context. And so you can say there came great wrath against Israel, or you could say there came great wrath upon Israel. Best option of the four. Came great wrath upon Israel. Indignation, horror, repugnance. And they said, look, we've reduced this king and this people to this much. We've done this with the land. We've come in and done all of this. You know what? We don't even have to kill the king. He's killed his own son. Can you believe it? Culture of death versus culture of life. War's over. We're going home. And that, to me, is the best human explanation we can see from this text, looking at at the text. It's the only thing that really fits. And they went home. Um, Application. We made some through the sermon, and I'll base this application on, on that last point. Three armies are at the end of the rope. There's confusion. There's starvation. Finally, through Jehoshaphat's leadership, they go to God's word for direction. Elisha was God's word in his day. This is God's word in our day. This is, this is the Elisha in the text for us, for us people. God's word. And in God's word, they were given hope, as we are given hope. The king of Moab gives it man's best effort. He tries to break through in a tactical manner. He's so desperate, he kills his own child. Isn't it sad when people are so desperate, they end a human life to get out of their temporary jam? What could that king of Moab have done? Well, he could have done what other secular kings, what other people we're going to read about have done. He could have said, you know what? The God of Israel is the God that I need to worship. And he could have changed his life and and submitted, and he didn't. He ended up taking life to get out of his own jam. And aren't you glad, Christian, that you don't have to resort to those desperate measures? When God saved you, he promised to walk with you, to comfort you, to be with you. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to make you right with God, to to make you close to God. We understand from Scripture that as Christians, uh, we, we can walk with Jesus the same way that the disciples did through the mediation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's, that's biblical. And you don't have to be so desperate. You, you do everything and throw everything at, at one line. It doesn't work so desperate. You sacrifice your son. You don't have to do that. Um, an absolute contrast between where some of us were before God saved us and where we are now. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit for us. He walks with us. Uh, Dr. Davis said this, what a relief biblical religion is. If you don't believe it, try paganism. What a relief it is. What a privilege you have to be a Christian. Don't use it as a cause for pride and looking down on people who aren't Christians yet, but use it as a cause to say, thank you, God, for what you've done and you're doing in my life. Thank you, God. And that's what our word tells us this morning. And I referred to it and couldn't help but think of the overarching theme of the Bible about another king whose son died. And that son died to save us. And it's a totally different contrast. What, what a God we have. What a, 
God we have, what a Savior we have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this part of your word. Thank you for these stories of of, um, what you did with your people in that day. Lord, help us to take uh, lessons from that, to look then and and understand that we're people here in this new covenant and, and see what you have for us in this day. We thank you for what we've learned and what you're teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it.